Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 40. Genesis chapter 48, part 1. Well, we're about to embark on a study that is just full of ramifications for our day and time. It's a study that's going to explore some areas of scripture that many of you have never before heard, let alone considered prophetic. And it's contained within the final three chapters of Genesis. And I will tell you honestly that from the first time I did this study several years ago until today, I've changed my thinking on some of my conclusions. And further, what caused that change were some very recent events that added new information and clarity to the mix. So I'm going to do my best to separate what seems to be concrete fact that you can rely on from speculation right, that is necessary to some degree to even approach this important area of biblical prophecy. So, so understand, I'm going to speculate some, but I'll try to tell you that all right, when I'm speculating. And as a good friend of mine often says to me, I reserve the right to be wrong. All right, about this speculation. So let's begin tonight by reading Genesis chapter 48 together. Genesis chapter 48. If you have the uh, complete Jewish Bible, <coughs> excuse me, it's, it's uh, page 55. Genesis chapter 48. A while later, someone told Yosef, Joseph, that his father was ill. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Right? And Yaakov, Jacob, was told, here comes your son, Joseph. Well, Israel gathered his strength and he sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, saying to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make of you a group of peoples. I will give this land to your descendants to possess forever. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be as much mine as Reuben and Shimon are. The children born to you after them will be yours, but for purposes of inheritance, they are to be counted with their older brothers. <coughs> Excuse me. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died suddenly as we were traveling through the land of Canaan and while we were still some distance from Ephrat. So I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, also known as Bet Lahaim. Then Israel noticed Joseph's sons and he asked, who are these? And Joseph answered his father, 
They are my sons, whom God has given me here. Yaakov replied, I want you to bring them here to me so that I can bless them. Now, Israel's eyes were dim with age, so that he could not see. Yosef brought his sons near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. Israel said to Yosef, I never expected to see even you again, but God has allowed me to see your children too. Yosef brought them out from between his legs, and he prostrated himself on the ground. And then Yosef took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near. But Israel put out his right hand, and he laid it on the head of the younger one, Ephraim. And he put his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He intentionally crossed his hands, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Yosef. The God in whose presence my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak lived, the God who has been my own shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm, bless these boys. May they remember who I am and what I stand for. And likewise, my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak, who they were, what they stood for. And may they grow into teeming multitudes on earth. When Yosef saw that his father was laying his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and place it instead on Manasseh's head. Yosef said to his father, don't do it that way, my father, for, for this one, he's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And he said, I know that, my son. I know it. He too will become a people, and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will grow into many nations. Then he added this blessing on them that day. Israel will speak of you and their own blessings by saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Israel then said to Yosef, You see that I am dying, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your ancestors. Moreover, I am giving to you a Shechem, all right, more than to your brothers. I captured it from the Amorai with my sword and my bow. Joseph received an urgent message that his aged father, Israel, Jacob, was very ill. So this ruler, Joseph of Egypt, took his two children, born by means of his Egyptian wife, Azanath, and he went to see Jacob, Israel, his father. 
And as Jacob, with great effort, props himself up in bed, out of respect, by the way, all right, for his son Joseph, vizier of Egypt, okay, he recites the Abrahamic covenant. That's what jo that's what Jacob is reciting here in paraphrase, all right, to Joseph. The terms of this covenant, having been taught to him by his father Isaac, just as Isaac had been taught by his father Abraham. And it is this, that the Hebrews will become very numerous and that they will become a kahal amim, a holy convocation of fellow countrymen. Okay. And they will be given the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now verse 3 is the beginning of the recitation of this covenant. And Jacob recounts an earlier part of his life when he speaks of meeting El Shaddai, God, at Luz. Now, Luz is an alternate name for Bethel. Okay? They're, they're one in the same place. Jacob did not call God by the name yud Hey vav Hey, Yehovah. That is not the name that Jacob knew God by. Because as we find out much later in Exodus at Mount Sinai, God had not yet revealed his personal name. Okay. Let's talk about that name that God went by before the age of Moses, El Shaddai. Okay. First of all, the meaning of this name has just recently come into focus. I was taught all my life as probably many of you were as well, that El Shaddai meant God Almighty. Right. Let me emphasize that that was a tradition. There is absolutely no linguistic basis whatsoever to translate El Shaddai into God Almighty. Okay. In fact, the older traditions for exactly what that mysterious name El Shaddai might have meant was generally based on the era and the particular language that it got translated into. Okay, for instance, the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint variously throughout translates El Shaddai as God, as all-powerful, as the Heavenly One, even the Lord. Okay. The first Latin translation makes the name to be omnipotent. The Syriac version says it means the highest or the strong one. So it's pretty obvious that all of these were primarily guesses. However, more recent scholarship in the field of paleolinguistics, the study of ancient or extinct languages has started to give us a much more accurate picture of the meaning of some of these obscure words. And as I've discussed before, since Hebrew is an offshoot of the Akkadian language, 
we find that by studying what's called language cognates, we can zero in on some of these difficult Hebrew phrases. Shaddai is almost certainly a direct language cognate of the Akkadian word Shadu. Shadu. And Shadu means mountain. So El Shaddai likely means God of the mountain. Okay. This of course fits hand in glove all right, with the general mindset of men in that ancient era by which gods generally lived up high in the mountains. All right. And with the understanding of the early Hebrews that God indeed did live high up on a mountaintop, didn't he? All right, Mount Sinai, to be precise. Well, let's move on. Jacob now does something astounding. Totally unexpected. He takes possession of Joseph's two sons. Israel adopts Joseph's children. Now, I've heard some Christian speakers argue that Jacob adopting these children was nothing unusual. He was simply officially making these Egyptian children, which is what they were, they had an Egyptian mom, into Israelites by accepting them into the tribe of Israel. That this sort of thing happened among tribes of this time is true. A declaration was usually all that was needed to change the nationality or tribal affiliation of someone. But the difference is this. Jacob didn't just make these children Israelites. He didn't simply make these boys as equals to the others of his many grandchildren. He put them on par with his own 12 sons. Okay. Jacob made Ephraim and Manasseh sons, as he says in verse 5, and now your two sons are mine as Reuben and Simeon, Shimon, are. He made these two Egyptian children, not adopted grandchildren, he made them as his own children. If we want to get technical, starting at this moment and for a time, it would be fair to say that there were now 14 tribes of Israel. The original 12, plus now Ephraim and Manasseh. But things aren't always as they appear. Today we're going to start a really challenging study that could make some of you pretty uncomfortable. For others of you, the study is going to bring you a new understanding that you've been searching for, but maybe you didn't know it. It's going to be pretty deep. It's going to be pretty difficult. We're going to go to a lot of Bible passages. It may even go against some things that your denomination taught as proper church doctrine. Okay? If you question the things I'm going to be telling you, that's just fine. 
Just go to God to ask you, to ask Him to show you the truth. He will. He will. At the least, our study of Genesis 48, which is centered on Ephraim, is going to help answer for many of you, probably many of you who just got back from Israel, the question of why you have this growing interest, if not downright passion, for Israel and for Torah. Where did it come from? Lord knows, if you went to, if you've been going to a traditional church, it didn't come from there, did it? You see, for almost 1900 years, the church has done its level best to ignore, even disavow, God's plainly stated plan that in order for the Gentile world, most of us, but not all of us, in this room, to be saved, we have to be grafted into the spiritual heritage of Israel. Ever since I was a child, I can remember my pastor telling the congregation that when we accept Christ, we are adopted or grafted into the family of God. Okay, true enough, I suppose. Okay, but that statement is a little like describing a piece of artwork as interesting. And if you're an artist, you hate that, don't you? Okay. It, it's so commonly bandied about that it really has no meaning other than just being gracious. Okay. The issue, however, is that the church has forgotten that the family of God as defined by the Bible is Israel. Okay? And that is certainly not the inference that is intended by most traditional church leaders. What, you say? Isn't the real family of God the church? Yes. But what makes the church the church is that as disciples of Yeshua, Gentile believers have been grafted into the covenants of Israel. Not instead of Israel, not as a replacement for Israel, but alongside Israel. But here's the rub. It's not about physical Israel per se. Rather, it's about a spiritual ideal of Israel. See, the thing is this. Both the older covenants and the newest covenant were given to Israel. Okay? Let's remember that the promise of another covenant after the covenant of Moses on Mount Sinai, this covenant, this new covenant was prophesied in a number of places in the Hebrew Bible. But probably most directly in Jeremiah 31. Let me read Jeremiah 31 through about oh, 34 to you. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I'll write it, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. Now pay close attention to me. Just exactly whom is this new covenant going to be made with? What did it just say? As Jeremiah 31, 31 states, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There is utterly no mention of this being some universal covenant or of this covenant being made between God and Gentiles. And nowhere in Holy Scripture will you find such a suggestion. Are you with me here? Gentiles, of which I am one, okay, we have no part of this new covenant unless we are somehow seen by God, declared by Jehovah as part of either the house of Israel or the house of Judah. That's the deal. Now, I doubt we have anyone in here that believes that the church has replaced Israel. But if we do, or at least if you're not sure if that's the case or not, then let me continue with Jeremiah 31, go a little further, which ought to make matters crystal clear to you. Let's continue on. I finished Jer Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now I'm going to start up again at 35. Jeremiah 31:35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation from me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Plainly, it says if the sun stops giving off its light and the waves cease to occur in the oceans and the stars disappear and the moon stops shining, then and only then will God cease to consider Israel and their offspring as his people, which is what a nation before me means. There is simply no way around all this. Okay? Replacement theology is error of the worst source, and I'll tell you why. Because it's not a mistake. It's intentional deceit. Replacement theology whereby the church has replaced Israel as God's people and it is the church that's received the new covenant is not the result of innocent error or ignorance. Rather, it was premeditated. 
It was a premeditated attempt to dishonor God's chosen Israel and to steal from them their inheritance. Okay, the covenants that God made with them and to answer a burning question that believers had begun to ask as the decades rolled on after Yeshua's death and the destruction of Israel. And the question that people were asking was, if Israel's supposed to be coming back as a nation, where are they? Okay. But Gentiles, we do have hope. We can be included in this newest covenant of Israel and Judah, and hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of us, have been included. But not just because we're a warm body or we're good. Okay. You see, from the time of Abraham forward, God made provision that any Gentile, usually termed a foreigner or a stranger, that wished to give up their allegiance to their pagan gods and become joined to Israel was not only allowed to do so, they were welcomed to do so. And they were to be considered first-class citizens of Israel. No distinction was to be made between those natural-born as Israelites, Hebrews, versus those who were born outside of Israel, Gentiles, but had chosen to become part of Israel. Those who joined Israel had just as much right to partake in the inheritance of the covenants of God as a natural-born Israelite. Okay. However, I, I plead with you to hear God on this matter. Outside of becoming part of Israel, there was and there remains absolutely no way to partake in God. Okay. Let me say one more time. Not physical Israel, per se, but this spiritual element and ideal that is Israel. Paul calls it true Israel. A definition, a phrase that's driven scholars crazy for centuries trying to figure out what he means by that. Now what we're going to find out as we put the pieces of scripture together is that God has created and implemented a plan that is in essence a circle. He created physical Israel, human beings, called Hebrews, as his chosen people to bring the knowledge of the one true God by means of laws and commands of God to the world. He brought forth the word from the Jews, specifically from the Jews. Okay. Then, because most Jews rejected that incarnate word of God, Yeshua of Nazareth, he gave the duty of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. And then after a long time, when the Gentiles have spread the word of God to the entire world, right, he has the Gentiles take the word back to the Jews. The Jews accept the word, who is Christ, and they are saved. And 
In this way, all Israel is saved. It's just one big circle. Okay. We're going to take a look at several biblical passages that makes this plan of God perfectly clear. So let's dive right into it. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans chapter 2. We're going to read... Um, 26 through 29. Romans chapter 2, 26 through 29. If you've got the blue uh, complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1404. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who've had a Brit Milah, a circumcision, and have Torah written out but violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart, spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Now, even though I've been using the word Israel a lot, that we must be part, made part, grafted into Israel, their covenants. Paul tends to use the word, excuse me, <coughs> Jew in place of Israel. Why? Because as far as people were concerned in Paul's era, the Jews were all that remained of Israel. Okay? In their minds, it was the Jewish people who represented Israel. So to Paul, as with most Jews, even today, Jew and Israel are one and the same. And Paul says that in order to be a true Jew, a true Israelite, you must be a spiritual Jew, a spiritual Israelite. Being a physical Jew in the end, is not the real issue with God. In fact, he says that it doesn't even matter whether a person is circumcised, meaning that that person has identified himself as a Jew, right? or whether he's uncircumcised, meaning he's a, a non-Jew, a Gentile. Okay? Because God's, God's definition of being a true Jew, what does he say that is? The condition of one's heart, not the condition of his flesh. It's his spiritual standing with Yehovah, not his genealogy that matters. But his spiritual standing based on what? What, what defines that spiritual standing? It's based on the provisions of the covenants made with Israel. 
from which faith that Yeshua is who he says he is and that he is God and that he is able to declare you clean and holy is the means to salvation. And to just really nail down that Paul is most definitely talking about Jews and Gentiles when he speaks of the circumcised and the uncircumcised and not just perhaps hmm, various Jewish people who now live in Jewish villages and cultures scattered throughout the vast Roman Empire or speaking of differences between various Jewish sects or whatever, we simply need to read what he says next in Romans 3.1. Alright, so right, just move right on to the next verse after Romans uh, 2.29. Let's move into Romans 3.1. And Paul asks this question. Then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Right? Does their unfaithfulness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar. Because Paul makes such an emphatic point of saying in Romans 2 that there is no spiritual distinction, spiritual distinction between people who trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he must now answer the logical question that any Jew that was listening to him as he spoke those words would have asked. Well then, what's the point of being bored as one of God's chosen people, a Jew at all? Has all that gone down the drain? And Paul says that being a physical Jew has many advantages. Because it was to physical Israel that God entrusted the word of God. Okay. And let's remember that the word of God is not just the Bible. The words of the Bible. Because Jesus is also called the word become flesh. Jesus was a physical Jew. But he was also the ultimate spiritual Jew. The ultimate spiritual Israelite. So while there is a definite distinction, of course, between being a physical Jew versus a physical Gentile, there is no distinction as to who is a spiritual Jew, spiritual Israelite, except as to the condition of his heart. Okay. Those who trust Yehovah, whether Jew or Gentile, are spiritual Jews by Paul's definition. Spiritual Israelites. Those who don't trust God aren't. My friends, even those among us who are by any means we have to identify ourselves, physical Gentiles, we are now spiritual Jews by this definition. If we have placed our faith in Messiah Yeshua. 
Now let me give you another way to think about this. I'm going to give that to you by defining just what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is people who have given themselves willingly over to the Lord. People who acknowledge the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the one and only true God. But more, it is those who acknowledge this truth by means of having faith in, Messiah, in the Messiah God sent to be our substitute. Because it's this faith that God counts as the sole identifying factor as to who his people are and are not. Okay. Yet the entire legal reason that this is even possible is contained within the covenants that God made with Israel and nowhere else. Spiritual Israelites are the sole residents of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what Paul defines as spiritual Israelites. Spiritual Israelites are Jews and Gentiles who trust Yeshua as Savior. Spiritual Israelites are not Jews who've taken on a physical Gentile identity in order to worship Christ. And spiritual Israelites are also not Gentiles who've taken on a physical Jewish identity to worship Christ. Jews remain Jewish. Gentiles remain Gentilish. The common point of meeting is union in Yeshua. And it's a spiritual union. Okay. Now, what I have said to you may very well be more irritating to the Jews among us than to the Gentiles. So I need you to listen very closely to what I'm saying. I am in no way asserting that I can take your heritage from you. I cannot. I'm in no way saying that something mystical happens to my body which makes me physically Jewish when I come to believe in the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. What I'm saying is that long before there even was an Israel, long before there was an Abraham, God's principles and laws and commands existed. Okay. By definition, these laws and principles and commands were always spiritual in, neighbor, in, in nature, weren't they? Always. They existed at first only in heaven. And it was the Lord himself who brought these spiritual laws and commands and principles from heaven and gave them to Israel and made them physical. By giving these spiritual laws and commands to Israel, they now took on, for the first time, a physical aspect 
There were do's and don'ts. Okay. In other words, before any physical creature was given God's laws, the laws were just divine ideals. Now, as they were given to a physical people in physical form at Mount Sinai, given to the Israelites, literally written onto a physical piece of stone, these laws and commands and principles came down from heaven and donned a physical form. But their spiritual aspect didn't cease to exist when that happened. It's like with Yeshua. He is the Word. He existed at first as a purely spiritual entity until he was born a baby from Mary's womb. The Word dawned a physical form when he entered the world to save it. But his spiritual essence didn't end. It's not one or the other. The whole point of being an Israelite, being a Jew, the Paul's way of thinking, was to be a physical creature who embodied and trusted these spiritual ideals of God. These spiritual ideals that became physical and tangible laws and commands and principles. Therefore, God sees any person who embodies these spiritual ideals as the truest form of an Israelite. Again, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual sense. And just as the physical symbol, physical symbol of being an Israelite is circumcision, so the spiritual symbol of being a spiritual Israelite is circumcision of the heart. Trusting Yeshua. Turn your Bibles now to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. You've got the complete Jewish Bible as page 1460. Ephesians 2, we're going to read verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember you your, formal, your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised, by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh are called the circumcised. At that time... You had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now, you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. Pretty explicit. Gentiles by birth, physical Gentiles, 
are foreigners, outsiders to the natural family of God. The family of God being defined as Israel. But now, we outsiders are brought near. We're declared citizens of Israel, members of the family of God by the work of Yeshua. Once again, not as members of physical Israel per se, but the spiritual ideal that Israel was always to be about. The irony in all this is that while today Gentile believers generally deny that when we're saved we become citizens of a spiritual Israel, back in Paul's day, Jews were trying to require that when Gentiles were saved, they had to become part of physical Israel. That they had to become Jews by having a physical sign put into their physical flesh. Physical sign was circumcision. Now let's put a little more, a little more meat on these bones. Let's turn to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, page 1411. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read verses 6 through, oh, I think, 9. But the present condition of Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed. For not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel. Indeed, not all the descendants are seed of Abraham. Rather, what is to be called your seed will be in Isaac. In other words, it is not the physical children who are children of God, but the children the promise refers to who are considered seed. For this is what the promise said. At the set time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So here it says it in another way. Every Israelite, from the negative side if you would, every Israelite is not necessarily a part of true Israel. And as none of us would argue, I think, certainly not every Gentile in the world is going to become part of the kingdom of God, right? Of course, what did Paul just finish explaining true Israel or a true Jew is. It's in the spiritual context of the ideal of Israel. Not in the physical, in the sense of simply having a Jewish mother. Okay, And he repeats this in verse 8. It's not the physical children, it's the children that the promise refers to who are the true children, those who trust God in their hearts. Okay, Let's wrap up this part of the lesson with going to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, we're going to look at verses 26 through 29. <clears throat> For in union with the Messiah, you are all children of God 
through this trusting faithfulness. Because as many of you as were immersed into the Messiah have clothed yourselves with the Messiah, in whom there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. For in union with the Messiah, Yeshua, you're all one. Also, if you belong to the Messiah, you are seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Yeshua, Jew or Gentile, then you are whose seed? Abraham's. And heirs according, it says, to a promise. What promise? Well, of course, the promise God gave to Abraham. Okay, And where is that promise of to Abraham contained? Within the covenant God made with Abraham, the first Hebrew. Is Abraham the forefather of the Israelites? Or is he the forefather of the Gentiles? Of course, he's the forefather of the Israelites. All of our hope as Gentiles is wrapped up in becoming spiritual Israelites, which we do by trusting Christ so that we might become partakers in the promises, or better, covenants, made between God and them. And Jews, same goes for you. That's what we've been taught here over and over. Okay. <coughs> and it's that Israelite, it's that Jew, not that blonde-haired, blue-eyed European. It's that Jew, Yeshua, who leads us to this and makes this all possible by his sacrifice on the cross. But that's not all there is to it. Okay? Christ was but part of God's plan. Most certainly the center point, the key part, but he wasn't the entire plan. So let's go back now. We've got this to Genesis 48 where we meet another part of the plan. One of the effects of this adoption and blessing by Jacob is that the firstborn blessing was finally assigned and it would go to Joseph. Now it may not seem so that that's the case at first glance, but it is the case. One of the inherent attributes of the firstborn blessing is that the one who receives it gets a double portion, gets twice as much. In fact, another name for the firstborn blessing is the double portion blessing. It's the same thing. Firstborn blessing, double portion blessing. Two phrases meaning the same thing. The idea is that the son who receives the firstborn blessing gets double or more of the clan's wealth. Twice as much as anybody else. Joseph's, follow me, double portion was manifested in that Joseph would actually get two full portions of Israel itself. How can that happen? By making Joseph two boys, Jacob's own sons. Each of Joseph's sons were now entitled to a full share of the wealth 
and authority and heritage equal with all their brothers, the other 12 tribes of Israel. Think of it this way. All the other sons of Israel from Reuben right down to Benjamin, since there were 12 of them, each were entitled to inheritance of one twelfth huh, of all that Israel possessed, of all that Israel was. But since Joseph's two sons were now considered as Jacob's sons, then each of them also got an equal share. So Joseph's family, Joseph's tribe, got the double portion blessing in that it received two shares of Israel. One for Ephraim, one for Manasseh. Whereas all the other sons just got one. Now you may be saying to yourself, yeah, but I thought with the additions of Ephraim and Manasseh, there were now 14 sons, 14 tribes of Israel. So why are we dividing by twelfths and not fourteenths? First, as I'm going to show you in scripture, Joseph did not himself receive a twelfth in addition to his sons receiving shares. The idea was that by giving Joseph's two sons each a portion of Israel, one-twelfth each, the effect, the effect was the same as giving Joseph two-twelfths, or double. So as we're soon going to see, Joseph would be, right on up till today, replaced, or more accurately represented, as a tribe of Israel by his two sons, each now given their own tribe, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But there's still a problem. Even with removing, so to speak, Joseph as one of the tribes of Israel and replacing him with his two sons, you still have 13 tribes of Israel, not 12. The original 12 minus Joseph equals 11. Add in the two sons of Joseph and we get 13. Well, the answer lies in what will occur some 450 years after this cross-handed blessing of Genesis 48. And I'm going to take you there the next time we meet. Now, up to this point in our study, I've given you some bits and some pieces, some principles concerning certain prophecies about the Israelites, and we briefly discussed Ephraim. But having reached this important point now in Genesis, it's now time for us to flesh out the impact of Jacob's cross-handed blessing upon Joseph's two Egyptian sons. Or better, how this cross-handed blessing would affect the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh far into the future. So let's stop here for this week, and next time we'll take a walk through several Bible passages to help explain the significance of what has just occurred here in Genesis 48. Okay.